Okay, anybody sick of COVID? <laughs> Masks, right? And washing your hands all the time. And do you wish it would just go away? Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's how some of us feel about racism in the church. Like, oh, can't it just go away, right? Can't we just be done with this, you know, and we love each other? But just like COVID, you gotta, you gotta deal with reality and you have to live through the burden, the price of really seeing it dealt with and healed. Paul talks about having fellowship not only with Christ in his resurrection, but we actually had in our last worship song today the fellowship of his sufferings. And so part of the sufferings of Christ is to bear with what it takes to really see transformation occur in our lives, in the church, and to the degree that it spills over in society. So we're going to be inviting Natasha to come and speak in a moment, but there's a verse that was on my heart they think especially maybe relevant, it's for all of us, but maybe for those especially who are uh, from majority ethnic group. It says here, Proverbs 14.10, each heart knows its own bitterness and no one else can share its joy. Right, there is a, there's a sense in which, and uh, of course this, I'm looking at two newly married couples and I don't know if they've had this experience yet, but there's this amazing experience when you're first married. Like you're, you're so close to someone like you've never been before. And yet it's like, and, we're, and you're one, but it's like you still are this other, per, right? There's, there's still that individual life of the soul that, that no one else knows unless you, you know, come and share that. And I think in this issue of race, it's particularly relevant that it's very easy to say, oh yeah, I understand, well... You don't really understand any other human being entirely. That is just reality, right? That there is, we all have a journey and a walk that we've had, and we all have a set of experiences through which we interpret that experience. And so, I really encourage you this morning, as you are hearing uh, aspects of Natasha's story, it's really a call to listen, to hear, to try to understand to accept. And so uh, would you join me in welcoming Natasha this morning as she shares with us. All right. So I'm excited to be here with you this morning and grateful for the opportunity to be able to share. So I'm going to give you a couple of things. I'm normally a hand talker. I'm also a mover, but I probably won't be doing a lot of movement today or hand talking. I have a lot of notes. Don't be frightened. I had to blow up the font so that I wouldn't be up, you know, sort of in the podium like this, okay? Um, but I'm gonna kind of stick to it. I've been in a place where um, people have been asking a lot of questions of me, um, particularly because of the times that we're in now, whether that's at work or here at church or friends. And so we've been having conversations about race and I've had to be really careful in terms of social media and the way that I'm interacting with people to make sure that I'm giving an answer that is filled with love grace and truth, right? Because I know that everybody's in a different place in terms of where they are in their understanding of race, where they are in terms of relationships with one another that have been cross-cultural. And so I really have, have had, you know, a couple of weeks or months to kind of think about this. And I've been leaning on Jesus, you know, just saying, what is it that you need me to say? 
in hopes that whatever it is that I have to say doesn't come out in a bitter or angry way. Although I've felt those feelings before, I want to make sure that it comes out in a place of grace and that we're able to receive it and to receive what God says. So that's where we are. So if you see me kind of looking at these notes, that's why. I don't want to miss what it is that God has has, um, given to me to say. And I want to make sure that the story is clear. Okay? God has done a lot for me um, in my life and, and racism has impacted me very greatly. But God has been a, a great healer. So I'm just grateful this morning for Tim and the songs that he sang and I'm listening to the lyrics and I'm like, okay, I can't get emotional right now because I have to go up here and share. you know. But hearing, oh, praise the Lord, right? Praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. God raised my life up from the dead. And so I'm gonna share with you a little bit about what that looks like today. The other piece is knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. I can say that with my life, that there is no greater thing than knowing Jesus. He has done a tremendous work, and I hope that you can hear the impact of what he's done for me so that you can be charged to move forward and let other people know about our King. Thank you, Pastor Craig. Thank you to the elders for inviting me to be able to share today. I want to thank the Lord for taking everything in my life and making it work together for good. I want to thank him for calling me according to his purpose. I want to thank him for allowing me to fall in love with him. I want you to hear some nuggets today from my story, and I hope you gain just a little bit more perspective, a perspective that I think American Christians should have about race and racial division in America. I want us to think about the unity and what that looks like in the American church and with American Christians. I want us to think about what it means to be in the world, but not of it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your faithfulness, your goodness, your mercy, your grace, your hand. God, we thank you for the power of your resurrection. We thank you, God, that you are faithful and you bring healing in all sorts of ways. We thank you, God, that you have your hand on our lives and you have called us together this morning to be able to hear your word and to hear from your spirit. God, I just ask that you would speak. God, that you would change our hearts. God, that you would grow us up in the name of Jesus. Father, we only have one life to live here on this earth, and I just ask that you would allow us to live it in a way that brings glory to your name. God, that it brings hope to people, that they are able to move through life, God, knowing that heaven is and will be their home. Lord, I just ask that you would touch this time and that you would just give us grace and peace and love, oh God. In the name of Jesus, I pray and give thanks. Amen. So one of the things that I found helpful in my walk as a Christian is the way that God's word gives us perspective, right? We are able to see God as God. He is the great I am. He is sovereign. He is merciful. He's our creator. He is wise and he is all-knowing. We're able to see the world, this whole world, as a world who needed and still needs a savior, Jesus. Every human being is made in the image of God seeing heaven as my home, seeing that things here are temporal. This is not our final destination, but one day those who believe in Jesus will be in the very presence of the King. The part we don't like to talk about sometimes though, is that there is a darkness here and that we have an enemy who is not at all interested in seeing the prayers of the righteous avail. He's not interested in seeing the prayers of unity that Jesus prayed come to fruition. He's not interested in seeing the light of believers. He came to steal, kill, and destroy. 
and he uses every way possible to do that. He's constantly tempting the hearts of men in hopes of alluring them away from the living water of Jesus, the bread of life, our redeemer, and the lifter of our heads. He's constantly offering temporary pleasure and comfort with promise of greatness and satisfaction and happiness. He has led men and women to believe that some must be small so that others might be small. Big. Others, that some must be big, right? So that others and others are small. And that some must be less so that others can be more all around the world. I know that this is true in America because I see it, I have lived it, and I live it every day. I have a perspective. As Christians, we must put and keep truth in perspective. Just over two months ago, our city was under duress because of the murder of Mr. George Floyd, a professed Christian, who may have been in the midst of a hard time. Hard times look different for everyone. He died at the hands of another man who clearly knew nothing of mercy. He instead knew of temporal, systemic, violent power, the overpowering of the weak to demonstrate his own strength. Mr. George Floyd's murder, Mr. Ahmaud Arbery's murder, Ms. Breonna Taylor's murder, Mr. Elijah McClain's murder triggered a dormant rage, an anger that rests in the underbelly of our country. It has awakened at moments throughout our history as a nation. Racially ignited riots are not new. They're just not new. This rage and anger is not new. It just lies dormant and then awakens periodically with the hope that someone will hear the cry of the oppressed. I hear Christians struggling with the slogan, Black Lives Matter, and their retort is, all lives matter, and all lives do matter. Since when do we look for every way to disengage from such a critical conversation by being afraid? We are the people of God. And we do not have to be afraid of a slogan or an organization. I don't have to talk about what I'm not aligning with, but humanity needs to hear me talk about who I'm aligning with in Jesus. We know the truth. And the truth is that all humans have been made in the image of God. Our nation has struggled to validate and affirm the humanity of black, brown, and indigenous people because we've sunk lies about humanity into the local, state, and federal law all over this country. And for many people, the law is the final word. We read about those people in the Bible all of the time. Jesus was hunted by people who refused to see anything but the law. They didn't want love and compassion to override the law. They wanted to keep things the way that they were. They didn't want a holy disruption. We don't want a holy disruption here sometimes. We want things to be the way that they used to be is human nature. It was written into our law that African slaves were accounted for as three-fifths human. And our nation has struggled to reclaim and affirm the full humanity of African Americans. This reclaiming and affirmation of the humanity of all people are we still clinging to the laws of this land? Are we still congregating in a way that is reflective of the way that Jim Crow laws were written into this land? Separate but equal. 
Look at your church and then let me know. Who better positioned to hear the cry of the oppressed than the church? Notice I said positioned. We're not equipped just yet, but we are moving in that direction. I say position because we know that the Savior Jesus, who at the beginning of his ministry did and said this in Luke 4, 16 through 20. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. That is the best mic drop you will ever see, okay? This is the Jesus that we know. It is the Jesus that I know personally. Jesus who sets at liberty those who are oppressed. I know because this is what he did for me. This is what he is doing for me. He granted me liberty. And with that liberty has come life, wholeness, and perspective. Oppression and an imbalance of power has had its grasp all over the world. It seeps into government structures and laws. It has designed caste systems fiefdoms, communism, chattel slavery, Jim Crow laws, xenophobia, genocide, and more at the hands of men. Oppression can be defined as this. It is malicious or unjust treatment or exercise of power, often under the guise of governmental authority or cultural opprobrium. Oppression may be overt, covert, depending on how it is practiced. Oppression refers to discrimination when the injustice does not target and may not directly afflict everyone in society, but instead targets specific groups of people. The Bible speaks of oppression again and again, and one writer said this, that the prophets Amos, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel thundered against it. The men of God thundered against it. So this means that our God thunders against oppression too. The United States of America is not a country that is exempt from this systemic oppression. But I've often felt like many people think that it is, and that is oppressive in itself. Look, we had a black president. What more do you want? Oppression is tricky in the United States because it has a different shade than other places. It isn't as aggressive as it may seem to be in other countries and that, that we often look down upon. It is much more covert, but it hasn't always been. It is deeply woven into systems that provide little access to poor white folks and indigenous folks and folks of color. This is a snippet of what oppression has looked like in my life. I grew up in a predominantly white middle-class suburban town southwest of Chicago and Illinois. When my family arrived, we were one of a handful of African-American families in the community, well-educated. 
The 2010 census claimed that the percentage of African Americans there was about 2.5%, so imagine what it was in 1977. This was only a decade or so after the civil rights movement. And I want you to know that this was not a town ready to fully embrace my family or families that look like us. Upon our arrival, the neighbors who lived across the street went from door to door and they petitioned other neighbors to get us out. They thought that their property value would decline. But my parents stood their ground. They paid their money, this is their house, and they were not going to move. I entered kindergarten in 1978 and was immediately under attack. As the white children teased me and spoke of my brown skin, the oil, and the texture of my hair. They called me the N-word repeatedly and said it around me and embedded it in jokes, and that would continue throughout my K through 12 experience. This N-word is a word that carries even more weight when you are unsure of your identity. It stalks you and speaks death over you. It is a curse. It reeks of inferiority and the implied superiority of the ones who dare to wield it. It is diminishing and dismissive. It belittles and oppresses. It makes one feel small and unnecessary. I spent my formative and adolescent years in a place with people and in systems that called me the N-word again and again and it took its toll. I think that it took more of a toll on me because I didn't know the truth about myself, that I was loved and valued and made in the image of God. I didn't know Jesus. The enemy knew it and he came for me. He used people and systems to tear me to the ground. This is what he does. He uses people and their words and actions to reinforce lies. But aren't you glad that we know a God who uses people, his word, and our actions to deliver and speak the truth? People need the truth spoken over their lives. In elementary, I was the only African-American student in all of my classes. My peers rejected me early on. They excluded me and often let me know my place. Most of my teachers were inattentive and dismissive of the things that my peers were doing to me. My parents, they tried to connect with me, but I couldn't tell them what was happening because I didn't want them to get into trouble. I thought that I could handle what was happening to me on my own, and so I lost trust in everyone. Not many friends made me feel sure of their friendship because they were unsure of me and my brown skin. From K through eight, I wasn't a very likable person. As a matter of fact, I was kind of awful. Mm-hmm. One of those. The racial abuse and trauma had taken its toll early and I was angry and doing everything I could to protect myself because wounded people wound people. Grades nine through 12 were different. I had changed. I decided to stop lashing out at everyone and only specific folks. I stepped into leadership and service and had gone from being a reject to being one of the cool kids. For the first time ever, I was popular for good reasons. This didn't make me exempt, however, from racial abuse. It just meant that the abuse was different. And it showed up in phrases like, you're not really black. You're different than other black people. But you don't know any black people. Here's a list of the things that happened to me during those years as a result of racial trauma and abuse. It's a list of my brokenness 
and the resulting sin that I would one day be invited to drag to the cross of Jesus. I struggled with a food addiction early on, a compulsion to numb my pain. I hid food and ate sweets at every turn to stuff down feelings of helplessness. Racism implanted a root of bitterness and anger in me at an early age. When I was six or seven, I attempted to seriously injure a boy who called me the N-word. My aftercare providers called my parents and told them that I was homicidal. I was physically aggressive and abusive, a bully with a strike-first mentality, always ready to fight because no one could be trusted. My behavior at home was unsettling. Everyone was the enemy, including my parents. I was emotionally and physically abusive to my little brother as I tried to toughen him up, to prepare him for the world that he would enter one day where people would hate him just for being black, and he wouldn't know why. I was probably clinically depressed until about 32 years old. That deliverance is one of many testimonies. My emotions were calling the shots and anger, the anger that I felt was just the tip of the iceberg. There was a deep hopelessness that rested in my soul. I remember thinking suicidal thoughts early as a child, just wanting to die. I had a lot of deep self-hatred. I suffered emotional abuse. Friendships were manipulative. I was friends with white peers whose parents were racist. And I had friends who were stuck in the tension of the lies that their parents taught them about black people and the truth that they saw in the friend that stood before them. They said things that were hurtful and cut very deep as they spoke from the abundance of their hearts. I was disengaged in school and not at all working to my potential. Talk to my mama academically. I had nothing to prove to people who could care less about me in my heart. The competitive system of school didn't entice me at all. It still doesn't. It is divisive and it is the first system that children enter that begins to separate them from one another based upon one mere part, one part of who they are, intellect. We are so much more than that. Our sovereign God has made us so much more than that. We're relational. We are artistic, we are cultivators of the earth, we are engineers, we are builders, we are stewards, we are feelers, responders, and caregivers. We are wonderfully complex, but we live in a system that often reduces us to our simplest form to serve its pleasure and greed. This is what racism is. Reduced to our simplest form. I'm black, you're white. You're indigenous, you're Latino, you're Asian, we're done. Easy, right? Reduced to its simplest form, but we serve a God who knows better. I suppressed my femininity because it was rarely acknowledged by anyone. I was hardly called cute or pretty or some of the things that girls need to hear. In the absence of any affirmation, it was like I was some sort of monster and not a girl with real feelings and a heart. I hated the way that I looked and I would often scratch out my pictures in my yearbooks and everywhere else and it drove my family completely crazy. You are wasting our money on these school pictures. Why do you keep scratching your face out, Natasha? <laughs> the main sin that took root as a result of all of this was lust in my heart and all that comes with it. 
I lived in my head in a world of fantasy, always finding some guy to fantasize about who I had secretly hoped would one day see me and come and rescue me from my despair and make me feel beautiful. The desire to be in a relationship had become an idol. A boyfriend was going to be my ticket to making everyone believe that I was not a monster. I got close to guys by being the cool friend and I suppressed my feelings and my femininity more and more to do so, and I didn't realize that until later, but I would see the results later on down the road. Low self-esteem, low self-worth, distorted self-image, hopelessness, despair, brokenness, people-pleasing, anxiety, compulsive, oppressed, and in need of a savior, in need of Jesus. My breath had been taken away by people who were convinced that I was not human. My desire to live was non-existent, and just when I thought that it couldn't get any worse, the enemy finally showed up and showed himself. And by the grace of God, I figured out what was going on. There was a force, a darkness, that wanted me to either live for it or die. Summer between my junior and senior year in college, my brokenness and sin collided. It was so overwhelming, I couldn't recognize myself in the mirror. Stripped of all femininity and unrecognizable. So far away from being everything that I dreamt of as a child, I had become empty, unidentifiable, and afraid. I had become what the enemy intended. He had stolen my identity, destroyed my soul, and now he wanted to kill me and my dreams. You see, when I was a little girl, at some point I saw one of my mom's friends at church. She was a beautiful black woman with this natural hair, incredibly feminine and graceful and kind, and she seemed to be free. I never felt free enough to display who I really was and who God created me to be. But I remember thinking when I looked at her, she's like me. One day I wanna be like her. I wanna be beautiful inside and out. That sounds like wholeness to me. I wanted to be whole, and the enemy wanted me to implode, as he wants many of us to implode. Perhaps he thought, what if God gets a hold of her? I often think that the enemy sees the potential in us before we do, and he works feverishly to snuff out gifts and callings early. Pray for and speak life over your children. During this time, I remember calling my parents at this low point, and they asked me, what's wrong? I told them, I don't know what was happening. I don't know what's happening. I was just having these thoughts swirling around in my head that I would be better off dead. And I was hearing loud voices reminding me of my lustful heart and my sin and what I could do to satisfy it. On that phone call, my parents asked me this question. They said, do you need to see someone? Do you need to see a counselor? And I remember saying to them, no joke, no, I think I'm gonna go to church because it's cheaper. <laughs> yes, won't he do it? Yes, he will. So, how did I know to go to church and to turn to Jesus? I don't know that I knew, but God knew. And I was desperate and needed guidance that wasn't of this world. Human beings had let me down. Human systems and the hearts of men had let me down. 
and I needed someone who could fix it, someone I could trust. By then it was clear to me that human beings were not capable of fixing me, but I would soon find out that the God who created me was. One of my peers, a Christian, persisted in inviting me to church. She was quiet and very Southern, and she wore skirts and no makeup and was as sweet as she could be. We were sort of opposite, okay? <laughs> um, over time, she invited me to church and I regularly said no. Over time, she insisted, right? She wasn't interested in me saying no, but she persisted. She persisted because she knew that Jesus could do something for me and my brokenness. She knew that Jesus could do it. She knew she couldn't do it. She knew that he could. Because he's a God who sets the captives free and sets at liberty those who are oppressed. She had asked me so many times that when I hit that bottom, I knew who to call. I called her and she was available. I went to church with her and when I went, I was a hot mess. I thought that people were peering through my soul when I walked in, but I didn't care that day. And Jesus wrapped his loving arms all the way around me and has not let go. Amen, amen, he's a, he's a good king. In my relationship with Jesus, I found healing and restoration, wholeness and forgiveness. It's been a difficult but deeply satisfying journey of seeing God deliver and heal me again and again. That list I read was a short list. We live in a world that is broken. Hearts have been broken. It is divided in so many ways, often with demonic motivation, dark intention, but many think that this is just the way it's supposed to be. As they clamor to find their team, their side, their people, their same race schools and their same race communities and their political affiliations. Everyone is clamoring to matter and scrambling for identity, security, purpose, and meaning outside of God. A long time ago, I resolved that there are many who have concluded that my black life doesn't matter and that my opinions and needs do not matter to them. Life might be easier if this were not true. Less stress, less defending, less disappointment, less fear for the lives of my nephews, cousins, brother, friends, family, less shrinking of myself to make others comfortable. But it's these things that make me know that I need more of God and that this world needs more of God and everything he has to offer. I know my worth, our worth in Christ. We are joint heirs with the Lord Christ Jesus. We are the head and not the tail. We've been made new. We're a royal priesthood, a chosen generation. His children, and if God be for us, then who can be against us? Greater is he that who is in us than he who is in the world, and we were bought with a price. There isn't much that I can do about not mattering to everyone. I can't spend my life working to prove my worth to anyone, whether a group of people or a whole planet. What I can do, however, 
is spend my life letting people know that they matter to God. So much so that he sent us Jesus to make all things new. I can let them know by treating them with dignity and respect and by loving them to life. I can let them know by living and working amongst them and not being afraid of their wounds. I can let them know by working to change systems and by being an advocate for them. This is how we let people know that their lives matter, by loving them the way that Jesus has instructed us to do. During this time of racial unrest, many people are asking, what do we do? First thing I'm thinking, you gain a better understanding of this country, the country we live in, the churches we worship in, the towns that we live in, the schools we've gone to and know the history. You stop thinking that, that same, the same formula works for everyone in the United States. Pick yourself up by your bootstraps and all that chatter needs to be canceled from Christian thought. I didn't pick myself up by my own bootstraps. Jesus has always picked me up and carried me. You stop painting the lives of people who are different than you with these broad brush strokes. You believe in systemic oppression because it's in the Bible. <laughs> and you connect the dots to our country's intended design for those who have most, have most and those who have the least. And you believe when they, people when they tell you that they are suffering racial trauma and abuse. You introduce them to Jesus. Be his hands and his feet, and like Micah said, act justly. Love mercy and walk humbly with your God. The second thing, we the church, we need to unify. The American church needs to be counter-cultural. People from different racial backgrounds need to be unified. Not everyone believes that we need to demonstrate oneness, but I do. We sometimes look just like the world and we act like it too. Jesus prays in this high priestly prayer in John 17. This is right before he's going to be arrested and give his life for our sins. He prays to the Father. He prays for himself and for his disciples because he knows that they will be on mission with the word of God when he leaves. He prays things like that they would know him that God would be glorified, that they would be kept, that they would become one, that they would be, have their joy fulfilled in themselves, that they would be kept from the evil one and sanctified in the truth. But then he goes on to pray for us, those to come. In John 17, 20, 20 through 23, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them as you love me. Our oneness is powerful. 
And I'm not sure that the world knows just yet that Jesus was sent because it sees our oneness. We're not quite one yet, but we're moving that way. Oneness with the body of Christ is powerful. And I do not imagine that it is the symbolic surface level kind of oneness. There is a deep humility that comes when cultures amalgamate. When we are willing to leave behind the unwritten rules of this world and connect with one another around the things that matter, there is a oneness that comes. If I were to let the world dictate my direction, I wouldn't be at this church. Our home group wouldn't be in the process of melding together across cultures. I wouldn't be married to my husband. I wouldn't have this beautiful collection of friendships across the country and throughout the body of Christ. Let's seek to be one. Third, know the enemy. If this is the prayer that Jesus prayed, what is the enemy's plan? To be divisive and to erect systems of division all around the world. These systems are everywhere. Our system of division took root in the United States with the government sanctioned pillaging, looting, and raping of people deemed to not be human. Indigenous peoples and their communities were dismantled and annihilated, left with mere scraps to rebuild. And we see the results of that devastation today right here in this city. It took place with the placing of African people, humans in chattel slavery, and using the most demonic, terroristic, perverse, and inhumane tactics possible to violate the humanity of black and brown bodies for hundreds of years, and even sometimes today. It, looks, it just looks different today, sometimes. It looks like the Japanese Americans who were placed in internment camps for three years and feared that they would retaliate during Pearl Harbor. It looks like thousands of Latino children being separated from their parents at the border and thrown into camps and cages. If the church cannot see this evil, who will? Because trust me, Jesus sees it. The enemy came to steal, kill, and destroy. He is divisive. He uses people, governments, and systems to break people's lives. It is what he has done throughout history, and it is what he is doing to this day. When we are aware of this abuse or deny its, we are aware of this abuse and deny its existence, we are being in this world and of this world. Here in the US, there are people who are racially and socioeconomically oppressed and who have been wronged by systems and structures. Mr. George Floyd is one of millions who has lost his life to our system. I am one of millions who has felt the weight of racism throughout my whole life in our systems. These riots, protests, and organizations are the cries of people who need to know our beautiful Jesus the one who sets at liberty those who are oppressed. And so my final question to you today is from Romans 10:14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching?
You want to know what to do? This is what you do. You live the gospel and you preach the gospel with intention. You let people know that they matter to God and you live in a way that lets people know that they matter to you. No matter what they look like or where they come from. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It is the truth that sets people free. Lead people to Jesus. I was led to Jesus. Persist and tell them the truth so that they can be set free. I was set free. You don't have to do the work. Jesus can do the work, but you let people know that he exists. Amen. Thank you, Natasha. So for some of you, you've processed, thought about, talked about some of these issues, and you know, there's some maybe some practical steps you're ready to move. Some of you, you might hear some of this and you're wrestling inside. You're gonna have to process a little, you're gonna have to think about it and sit with it a little bit. And that's, you know what, that's okay that sometimes you, you don't have a, you've not heard a perspective before from someone, uh, like in this case, an African-American woman, and her experience. And, you know, I just encourage you, don't be defensive. Just kind of feel free to sit with it, let it sink in. And you know what? This is not a church of 5,000. You, you can call her up. <laughs> you can send an email. You can talk with me. It, it's good to do this. This is not the temptation on our microwave Christianity would be to have, and now we've got the answer, do, 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 and it's all done, and woo! That's not how this is, right? This is developing relationships, gaining perspective, understanding, you know, I, I've, um, over the years, I remember a first uh, close uh, Nigerian immigrant friend and just all the perspective that changes. And you think, oh, well, now I know about black people. No, you know about one Nigerian immigrant, right? <laughs> <You know? laughs> right? And then you meet someone, you know, uh, close friends with Mike Wong, you know Mike, right? And, and, and his experience as an immigrant at age 13, very different, right? And then getting to know Natasha and others. So uh, it's, it's just, it's a constant process of really coming to understand what we started with, uh, what I started with in Proverbs 14.10. Each person, each soul knows their own experience. They know what they've experienced. But I love how she closed that each person knows the healing in Christ, right? That's, that's where we find the restoration and the strengthening and the healing. So uh, I'm not surprised she took my verses. That's great. Um, so John 17, she's already mentioned, but if you, you should really know verse 21 and 23 because they are the prayer points of Jesus in his prayer. And so one, somebody, I don't think I made this up, somebody uh, said this better than I could, Trinity fellowship releases Trinity power. So again, being one is not just being in the same room. And he's saying when, when they're one like you and I, Father, are one, Trinity fellowship releases Trinity power, right? And so we're, we're seeking to build relationships so that we can see the power of the gospel flow to people very different from us, whether racially, culturally, intellectually, uh, in maybe disability, whatever it might be, that we're, the gospel is for all who are humble and hungry 
and will receive it. So we're really grateful for this uh, powerful reminder. And I'll just give one little, uh, most of you know I'm kind of a Bible language bug. Okay, so just do one little translation thing here. Micah 6.8, she mentioned, uh, he's told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Just a couple quick comments on that verse. To do justice and to love mercy. The word mercy there is the Old Testament word chesed. And so what he's saying is, I want you to love being merciful just like I've given you mercy. I want you to be a mercy giver like I've given you mercy. So in other words, the depth of your experience of God's mercy releases a depth of giving away of mercy to others. And then, uh, while coming with your God, a very literal translation is to walk wisely attentive with your God. So it's humility, yes, but it's humility with the eyes open. Lord, what are you doing in this day? Well, one thing God is doing in this day, very obviously, even you know, all of us can tell, even the less prophetic, is he's raising this issue of race and healing, and the answer is in the gospel. And Natasha's been so clear with that, that the answer is loving people in Christ Jesus and demonstrating uh, through real relationship. So um, thank you, Natasha, again. Let's give her another hand just of appreciation. And one other comment. Recognize if you've never done anything like that, I just wanted you to point out that that is really vulnerable. That's like, here is all my, not even she said, the short list of, of her junk. <laughs> right? and, and there it is in front of the whole church. So just, you know, be aware of that and be uh, thoughtful about that, right? As she's been very vulnerable with us. So let's stand together. As we stand before the Lord, he is always calling us to response, to draw near to him, certainly. And so as we close, I'm just asking you to open your soul and say, Lord, what is my steps today? What, uh, what are you asking me to do? And maybe you'll you know, have something very clear in your mind. Otherwise, it may be revealed over the next weeks. But let's just pray. Lord, we thank you for the chance to be together. We ask that you would make your church through the power of the gospel agents not of obstruction but of healing pray for sojourn where we have the most influence naturally other guests here may have home churches where they can be a voice of light and life we ask in Jesus name that she would enable us to love with humility kindness, firmness, strength to share your truth wherever we are, Lord. Just ask every head bowed, every eye closed just for a moment. If you're standing here today, you say, I'm not sure that I'm in right relationship with Jesus. Sense that I need that. Just raise your hand and I'm going to pray for you. you. Say, I need to take a step toward forgiveness. Yep. Yes. Yes, okay. I'm going to pray right now. Yes, okay. So, Lord, in Jesus' name, just where we have failed or stumbled in thought or word or deed, attitude, we ask your cleansing, your purifying, 
and the power of transformation and the healing of the gospel to be manifest in each of our lives. We thank you for this, O oh God. We thank you for this. Hallelujah. And so now we ask you, bless each one. Pour out your spirit on us. Fill us with your word. Connect us, each of us, with strong, authentic relationships in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.